welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. Welcome to our latest review show. This month our reviews include Godzilla vs. Kong, Promising Young Woman and Nomadland. Then there's Darren's Quiz. Your quiz sidelined again, Jeff. Can't think why. Thanks, Neil. You thought of visiting any red list countries? I will monitor to make sure you follow the full quarantine laws. Anyway, later in the show, there is Darren's Dash, which this month includes Mitchells vs. The Machines, The Counterfeiter and Stowaway. Before we start the show, a shout goes out to our Listener of the Month. This one coming from Boyo, Geezer and Paddy, all the way to California for Frank, an avid listener to the show, although he has to explain some of the more complex words to his girlfriend of the week. As they say stateside, have a nice day, Frank. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Now, last month in our review show, I made the bold claim that the Marvel movies would be improved if they brought in Zack Snyder. Funnily enough, the same day that show was released, Marvel hurriedly brought out a thrown-together trailer showing their wares for the next couple of years. Clearly, I worried them with what I said. Nice move, guys, but I have to say, what I saw in that uneven trailer was more of the same. How about this? Don't use your undeserved millions to drown me out, Marvel. I'm only the little guy, although not as little as Graham, obviously. I just tell it like I see it. And very sorry if you can't handle the truth. So here's my offer. Work with me on this, Marvel. You have my number. Just give me a call and I will try to hook you up with the Zack. It's the merger the world's been waiting for. And I will add this for free. Your films will be world beaters with a combination of the Zack and genuine Welsh locations. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. Wow, Jeff. Oh, here we go again. Jeff's edited my words. Wow, Jeff, your words and perception there have almost moved me to tears. I am a Marvel fan. I know I flagellate myself nightly to remove the urges, but even I see the sense you have given us all a superhero moment of clarity. Where's Jeff? Hi, my name is Neil. I love the Zach. He can do no wrong in my eyes. Which Zach? Zach Efron. That's a bit random, isn't it? What's he got to do with the above? Neil, it is actually a pleasure to hear you on this podcast. I haven't heard much of me recently. In fact, not since you found Noel Clark's address book. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, didn't swear, didn't swear. Uh, hi, my name is Phil. You can find out more about my film tastes via my blog page on philthebearblog at wordpress.com. Right now, I'm imagining Zack Snyder's Fantastic Four <laughs> movies, where we get to see Johnny Storm ignite in slow motion at least half a dozen times, <laughs> Dave Batista's Thing wearing glasses on a string, Sue Storm wearing an outfit from Sucker Punch, and Mr. Fantastic snapping Dr. Doom's neck. I'm sure it will be a masterpiece. <laughs> you sold it to me, Phil. Hi, I'm Darren, and if you want to know more about my wild, varied, and weird movie tastes, you can follow me on Twitter at Desert Loves Movie. Um, that is movie, not movies, because I ran out of letters. And you can read my blog at <laughs> halfguarded.com. I would love absolutely any feedback, although anyone who tries to educate me on being woke and getting me to recognise the problematic aspects of my favourite movies. 
can frankly go do one. And speaking of the... Uh, <laughs> Speaking of feedback, Jeff, it would be great if just once in a while I could mention Marvel on my Twitter and not if you respond with some piffy comment. Tell you what, I'll enjoy my Marvel movies and you can have your Zack Snyder and you can go all googly-eyed over his designer stubble and his big bodybuilding physique. How's that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm at a loss for words for once. (laughs) Oh, good. Carry on, Darren. Keep that up for the rest of the show. What do you think, listeners? Should Zack Snyder leap over the fence to Marvel? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) How about you, listener of the month, Frank? Marvel with a DC flavoring? Or should the Zack better employ his talents on a remake of Die Hard 2? (laughs) While Frank ponders the answer to that question, let's get the answer to last month's quiz. Phil, your quiz last month was a marked improvement on the ones in earlier months. Do you want to provide the answers to the ones we didn't get? Well, because my quiz is clearly much fairer than Jeff's, there's only one question unanswered. So the members of the Lonely Island that you didn't name are Jorma Tacone, who directed the MacGruber film with Will Forte and Kristen Wiig, and Akiva Shaffer, who directed The Watch, with Ben Stiller and Vince Vaughn. And, of course, they've done lots of amazing songs with Andy Samberg as The Lonely Island. Isn't there an Andy Samberg film you want to plug yet again, (laughs) Phil? Well, I mean, we can always just check in with the viewers to see if they all watch Popstar Never Stop Never Stopping. Oh, thank you for that, Phil. And yet again, I don't get the questions back, as Neil gloatingly said in the introduction. Got to hand over to somebody else. As long as it's not me. No, it's somebody sensible. Over to you, Darren, and the quiz music we've chosen this month is Bullseye. Super smashing great. Okay, then. (laughs) So let me explain what the quiz is going to be. We've got three questions, all multiple choice, and in honour of the, uh, the main topic of conversation this month, they're all to do with Godzilla. But question number one. Here are four trivia statements about the original 1963 King Kong vs. Godzilla, but only one of them is true. Which one is it? A. The role of King Kong was played by a real ape wearing a gorilla costume. B. A young Clint Eastwood appears for a split second in an uncredited role as a Jack Squadron leader. C. There were two endings to this film. One for American audiences where King Kong won and one for Japanese audiences where Godzilla won. Or is it D. The original concept for this film was King Kong versus Frankenstein. Jeff, what's your answer? Okay, the correct answer is is C. There were two different versions. I actually saw the one where King Kong won, and I did read later that there was one where uh, Godzilla won. By the way, B, the answer, the correct answer to that is Tarantula. Just saying yeah, C would, have, would you, have been enough. You okay. really have <laughs> not the idea of this, have yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, sorry, but I had to be cocky, didn't I? Yeah. Okay. Neil, what's your answer? Uh, C. <laughs> okay, Graham, what's your answer? I'm also going to go for C, but for a different reason. I They used to take the Japanese film and then chop it up for the American audience. Phil, what's what your am answer? What am I supposed to do then? 
You're all so confident. I feel like we have to have a, a an outlier. So I'm going to say it's Frankenstein, which was D. <laughs> okay. I'd pay to watch that. The answer is the one given by Phil. It's D. Green. Yeah. No. yeah, yeah. I just copied Jeff. Yeah, he sounds so so confident. Jeff, yeah. Okay, mm. the two endings is actually a very popular but very wrong urban myth. So, whatever ending you saw, you saw Jeff. I don't know where you saw that, but it's a it's a very popular urban myth. No, no, I saw the one with Kong wins. Yeah, but then I read up on it, and it's the whole thing that there was two audience. Yeah. Well, I'm going to no. go back there. I'm going to sue somebody now. No, it's it's an it's an urban myth, and it's one that is repeated by podcasters who really should know better. I've 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 heard this repeated <laughs> by tons of pop culture and movie fans who give this answer, and they're all wrong. And so, so the correct answer was that originally the idea for this was going to be King Kong versus Frankenstein. They couldn't get the rights to uh, the Frankenstein monster, so I think it was Universal that had it. And so we went with uh, went to Japan and uh, did King Kong vs Godzilla. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to jump in and say disagreeing with Jeff obviously bears fruit. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. and, and I will go. I will follow that obviously. Yeah, there's a life lesson if we ever needed one. <laughs> okay, so wow. question number two: In Invasion of the Astro Monster, Godzilla famously does a dance after defeating King Ghidorah. What dance does he do? Is it A, the moonwalk, B, the highland jig, C, the can-can, or D, some breakdancing? So uh, <laughs> this, this time, because you're in the lead, Phil, we'll go with you. What's your answer? It's definitely not moonwalk, because that, that didn't exist, right? So what's the other three? The highland jig, the can-can, and a bit of breakdancing. The jig. The highland jig, Okay. Graham, what's your answer? Oh, I'm going to go for the can-can. Can-can. Neil, what's your answer? I'm going to go for the moonwalk, even if it wasn't invented. (laughs) And Jeff, what's your answer? Uh, The jig. The answer is, indeed, B, the Highland jig. Jeff, And if you want to see this, you can um, basically go over to YouTube and uh, there's a little clip of it on there. It's worth checking out the jig. Okay, so at the moment, Phil is in the lead on two points. Jeff is on one point, and Neil and Graham have no points. The winner of this gets to look behind Bully's prize. If you lose, it's a car, and if you win, it's a boat. (laughs) Question three. Here are four trivia facts about the 1998 American Godzilla movie directed by Roland Emmerich, but only one of them is true. A. Matthew Broderick was denied a work visa to star in a movie filmed in Japan in the year 2000, supposedly because of his involvement in this film. B. The cancelled planned trilogy for this film would have ended with a crossover with the Peter Jackson King Kong movie. C. Toho, the Japanese makers of Godzilla, bought the rights to the American Godzilla monster so they could have their own Godzilla destroy it in a fight. Or D, (laughs) at a star-studded Japanese premiere of this film, the organised switched off the film halfway through and began showing the original 60s Godzilla movie instead to rapturous applause. So, Neil. I'm going to go D. Jeff. D for Dennis. 
I will also go D. Yo, you go for D and Phil. I really want to win, so I'm going to say D because that means I can't lose. I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's not supposed to be a quiz like that. Do you no, want I was, was going to go Japanese Premier, but um, now that yeah. Jeff said it, I'm definitely going for it. Go on, Graham. I'm going to go A. The Matthew Broderick. Unfortunately, you're all wrong. The correct answer is C. Toho, the Japanese makers, did in fact buy the rights for the American Godzilla monster so they could have it in a Godzilla <laughs> movie film, Godzilla Final Battle. So does that exist, that film? Yeah. They actually changed the name cool. of the monster, though. They changed it from Godzilla to Zilla because they didn't think it was worthy enough to have God in the title. And the actual wow. fight and the fight lasted literally about 10 seconds. The, the, real, the real Godzilla basically just, like, beat it that quickly. It was basically their middle finger to the American Godzilla movie because they hated it that much. You'll be pleased to know that is the last question on my Godzilla quiz. So the winner is Phil with two points. Three. Well Yay. done. Thank you, Darren. Yeah. You win a tankard and some darts and a bendy bully. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put my boat on the driveway. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Darren. Great questions. Next month, perhaps, I should set them. This show is missing a quiz based around the mail. <laughs> Speaking of larger-than-life characters, let's move over to the review section, where we start with Godzilla vs. Kong. We need Kong. The world needs him. To stop what's coming. And this child. She's the only one he'll communicate with. I knew that they had a bond. She had nowhere to go, so I made a promise to protect her. In some way, Khan did the same. It's Godzilla. Sorry, just before you start there, Darren. You've got Godzilla versus Kong, and they decide to put rap music in the trailer. Could this get any worse? <laughs> Over to you, Dan. <laughs> when it comes to promoting big fights, the likes of Dana White, Eddie Earn, and Vince McMahon need to st- take a step aside because a film studio just outdid them. Warner Brothers had a promotional strategy that was simple but obscenely effective. Make two movies to establish a giant lizard as a ferocious badass. Make another movie to establish an iconic giant ape as a ferocious badass. And then have a fourth movie where the two of them get together and have a crowd-pleasing clash of titans. Kong vs. Godzilla returns us to a world where humanity is still coming to terms with the existence of giant titans. Godzilla, once regarded as humanity's protector, has suddenly begun a rampage devastatingly seemingly random cities, leading to the return of Millie Bobby Brown as Madison to investigate why. Meanwhile, Kong is being studied on Skull Island with the help of a deaf girl who is able to communicate with the big lug in a giant man-made dome to protect his existence from Godzilla, as the, the two belong to racers who have a century-spanning feud. Causing problems is a sinister corporation that has designs on luring Kong away from the safety 
of his environment and use him as a guide in the labyrinths of the hollow earth to find a precious energy source. Surely this is so lovely Elsa Gonzalez can use the energy to better mankind and not use it to power a giant out-of-control robotic Godzilla replica. Will an all-star cast be able to stop Godzilla's rampage and help confine the special energy source and keep the two behemoths from clashing? Of course not. Here we go. Best of three falls or a knockout to decide the winner of the showdown we've all been waiting for. Seconds out. Phil, is this epic clash Marvin Hagler versus Tommy Hearns, or is it more Grace Jones versus Russell Harty? <laughs> um, I, I thought it was awful and I hated it and I'm really sorry guys <laughs> come on um, Phil so don't beat about the bush I do like some dumb films honest but I just I don't think kaiju films are for me at all and I think we, we kind of came to that a bit in, in the quiz there Phil would that Gone. be the quiz you won yeah, yeah. <laughs> no but like just like for our viewers, like that, so they can decide whether or not they can completely discard my opinion. Pacific Rim and its sequel, rubbish. Godzilla King of the Monsters, even worse. Kong Skull Island, meh, it was all right. And Gareth Edwards' 2014 reboot of Godzilla is probably the best of all of them. But I don't really have any urge to revisit it. Now, if you completely disagree with all of that, completely disagree with what I'm about to say. I just get really bored watching these films. I just don't care about any of the characters. The human stories are awful, and they just boil down to two groups of characters in this one. One pushes the plot forward, and the other provides comic relief. None of them are well-written or interesting. And then it's kind of the bit where you think I'm a joyless snob because there's this big spectacle about these two massive things attacking each other. So you've got Godzilla versus Kong on an aircraft carrier, Godzilla versus Kong destroying Hong Kong. Brilliant. The effects work is amazing. It looks great, but I'm just really bored because I don't care about Godzilla and I don't care about Kong. And Dan, someone tell me when you're talking about it, why I'm supposed to care. And kind of my final thoughts on it is Zack Snyder took a lot of rap for killing half of a city. Well, they've got nothing on this. Man of Steel gets a reprieve here because Godzilla versus Kong can do a bit more damage than those. And I actually thought that the Hollow Earth stuff could have been quite an interesting science fiction film. So, yeah, sorry. thought it was awful. Well, okay. Let's not beat around the bush, eh? Better go straight to you, Graham. I just wanted to say I had a really good cinema experience watching this. Uh, I watched it in a packed IMAX. Obviously, when I say packed, I mean it was as packed as possibly it could be with social distancing seats between the families. But the excitement of the young kids around me really added to the atmosphere. I had a blast. I think Team Kong in my cinema had the slight edge. There was a little girl in front of me. She was shouting for Kong to get up at the end and help Godzilla. I mean, she was so into it. And I just thought it was great. I got my ears blasted out. IMAX is definitely the way to see these big, silly monster movies. And it's just great family entertainment. And when the big evil character appears at the end, the look on these kids' faces and the in-drawing of breath was just great. This film, to me, is more a treat for, for the senses than your intellect. I mean, wonderful CGI. I mean, water on fur is this year's fashion statement and clear air turbulence as well thrown in for good measure. I just thought it was great. You don't have to think about it. 
it doesn't set out to be Bertolt Breck, does it? It's just big monsters beating the shit out of one another. What more could you ask for? Well, I think we put something back to our listener of the month, Frank. <laughs> Things that tall, what would the ear turbulence on them be? <laughs> <laughs> Neil. Well, this clearly isn't a film aimed at me, but oh, CGI, 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 and nothing else. And no point did the governments of both US and China intervene, let alone anybody else. And a movie without consequences is just an empty shell. And of course, all that sort of uh, damage would incur a considerable amount of paperwork, as Hot Fuzz would say. The cast are largely wasted and made to do ridiculous things. The lecturer in, who is uh, confined because of his idiotic ideas to uh, a, a, an office uh, tells the military what to do. Right. Lines like, this had better work. <laughs> and, and all I could think of is, or what? You're dead. <laughs> Um, I've never rolled my eyes as many times in a movie. It was utterly banal. These sort of films need to be uncomplicated and based around the human characters seeking to control the creatures rather than just CGI monsters, the people therefore being scarier than monsters and not just the monsters and some silly stuff have been happening in the background. The fight scene was endless. Is he dead? Oh, no, he isn't. And Kong being managed by a six-year-old Burgess Meredith character. Was it the spear-throwing incident that tipped you off? He's been taught sign language without anyone knowing. It was bland and pointless. Um, I'm interested in your comment about it needs to be further and complicated. If it was further and complicated, your brain would flatline. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Anyway, Darren, I'm sure you're going to be in the corner for either Kong or Godzilla, or perhaps both. Over to you, mate. I have not seen a film that had so many weak plot points that made no sense, that had so many ridiculous contrivances and coincidences such as Godzilla using his atomic breath to create a tunnel to the centre of the earth that just happened to come out where Kong was so he could climb up and get into the thing. There just exactly. so many stupid stuff that just didn't make sense. I mean, taking Kong to find this energy source just for, for, for no real reason. And the fact is, at the end of the day, I didn't care about any of that because I just wanted to have fun with this movie. And the thing I really came for that got me excited when I saw that trailer is I wanted to see Godzilla versus King Kong in a big, long, epic fight. And that is exactly what I got. And I got something I really didn't expect as well. I got a winner. Obviously, I knew at some point they're going to team up and they're going to uh, team up against Mechagodzilla because unfortunately the trailer accidentally showed you him in the background so you knew it was there but what I didn't expect is that you would actually get a winner between the two of them and and that was great and I thought the fight was absolutely awesome I have to say I did get invested in it because I'm a long time Godzilla fan so I was very much Godzilla by the end of the fight I was actually rooting for Kong there was just something about him that got me sympathetic so the, you know that really worked on on me uh, the fight as well, I thought, was spectacular. They, they clearly learned from King of Monsters by they made this so you could actually see what was going on in the fight. You could, you know, they had this wonderful neon background in the fight in Hong Kong that just looked really impressive. Yeah, the human element of his story was pretty poor. At, at the end of the day, you know, what I wanted it is it, it delivered. I, I will say that the um, I thought the young deaf girl uh, was was great. 
you know, she she did a, a you know there was something about her where she managed to put into her, her mannerisms what she was thinking, and you know when she sort of was the first to hear Godzilla coming, but the look on her face, it, you know, was 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 really good, and I thought her relationship was really sweet with Kong. I just really in, enjoyed it. Um, I am hoping to see it again because I saw it on a small screen. I do want to see it in on the biggest screen that I can because I think it is a, a spectacular movie and. Considering what we've been through in the past twelve months, uh, you know, I mean, to watch sort of you know mm. small independent movies, which which I've loved, but it's great just to see something with a bit of spectacle and a bit of fun, even if it was really dumb fun. For me, it it worked. Thank you, Darren. You want spectacle? Peter Rabbit Two is coming. <laughs> yeah. Now, this review started with Darren giving a synopsis, and it was a really good synopsis. And I thought I'd see that film, and I thought, hang on, I have. And I'd completely forgotten all about it. It's just so dull. Two giant creatures hitting each other and then go into the centre of the earth for no reason I could work out. I just went for another drink at that stage. I mean, Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote his Pellucida series, which is all about the centre of the earth and how it's got its own sun. It, they ripped off Pellucida, something rotten. If you want to see a decent film on that, watch At the Earth's Core okay. from 1976. Really good. Is that what they were referencing, do you think? Well, the whole Pellucida Hollow Earth thing, absolutely. The problem with this whole monster series is, and a lot lot of you have already mentioned it, they just don't get any interest in the human characters. They get great actors. I mean, Rebecca Hall, Alexander Skarsgård. I mean, for Pete's sake, they're brilliant. I just hope they got well-paid or they've got a fetish about green screen because that's the only reason they must have been involved in this. And it goes all the way back to the original Godzilla in 2014. The smart actors like Brian Cranston all asked to be killed off, got it in their contracts. You know, <laughs> 45 minutes in before there's any creatures, we want to be seen, then toast us. And then it just left us in that film with B-grade actors. The only one that got it right, and again, I go back to what Darren said, is Kong Skull Island. It was a clever idea set in that at the time of Vietnam, had great characters, and interesting actors, you know. And if you look at those main actors, you've got Tom Huddleston, Brie Larson, Samuel L. Jackson, actors desperately wanting to get out to work for Marvel, and they thought that Kong Skull Island would do it. <laughs> so, oh, but ultimately, all these films are giant monsters beating the shit out of each other. While Kong Skull Island had tense moments, this doesn't have any of that. It's dull and uninspiring. When we did our quiz... We spoke about how the Japanese hated Roland Emmerich's Godzilla. Well, I'm sorry, that was a monster movie that worked on all levels. Uh, my final word is, not even the Zack could save this series now. <laughs> <laughs> Neil. Hopefully our discussion hasn't made a monkey out of anyone. It's an apium muppet. Now, that bad pun finishes our review of Godzilla vs. Kong, thank God. Let's get back to the real world with the drama The Mauritanian. I'm Nancy Hollander. This is my associate. We wish to represent you. We are seeking the death penalty. But if we miss something, this guy goes home. Let's get to it. The U.S. government is holding upwards of 700 prisoners in Guantanamo. Since when did we start locking people up without a trial in this country? That's a lot of case files. The prosecution won't show us the evidence they have against you. It's all redacted. You got a problem? Take it up with the government. All my time here, I've been told you are guilty. 
not for something that I have done, but because of suspicions and associations. I am innocent. He has been interrogated. He has been held against his will for six years without a single charge being laid against him. Does it bother you at all working for someone like this? I'm not just defending him. I'm defending the rule of law. You haven't seen what I've seen. British director Kevin MacDonald, better known these days for his documentaries such as Whitney and Marley, returns to feature filmmaking with his dramatic true story. In 2002, Mauritanian citizen Mohamedou Oudslahi, played by Tahar Rahim, is taken from his country and incarcerated without charge in Guantanamo Bay. Years later, defence attorney Nancy Hollander, played by Jodie Foster, takes up Slahi's case and prepares a case against the United States. As no charges had been raised, how can he be confined? This challenge sets the scene for a legal challenge which will affect the lives of all involved. Graham, does this work as a film or would you rather have seen Kevin MacDonald make this as a documentary? Yeah, I'd probably want him to make it as a documentary because this movie just didn't work for me, really. I mean, I should have enjoyed it. It stars two of my favourite actors, uh, Foster and Cumberbatch. However, this movie, to me, just seemed disjointed and flat. Uh, and I really can't put my finger on it. I mean, I really wanted to like this, but it just didn't grab me. Apart from Mohamedou Old Slaghi, Despite his endurance of the kind of abuse and deprivation that multiple movies and television shows have rendered all too familiar, I still find myself just wanting to get to the trial scene where Foster and Cumberbatch rip chunks out of one another, but nothing ever happens like that. I didn't get that trial of the Chicago 7 feel, the sense of decent, honest people fighting against the corrupt system. The whole thing deflates as we move on to a very unsatisfactory conclusion. I mean, does anybody remember the final scene of this movie? I don't. It really didn't leave an impression. It was really very disappointing. Uh, don't get me wrong, it's well-directed film, and the three main stars are excellent. The story, I think, is what let this film down. I just, It just didn't provide enough revelation or intrigue or discovery to be that interesting. In fact, the mid-credit scene at the end of the film where the real Salahi listens to Bob Dylan and laughing and singing along with the music, he's the picture of contentment. Not somebody who spent 14 years in Guantanamo Bay left me feeling weird and with the totally the wrong impression. No, this just didn't work for me. I'm sorry. So what are your thoughts at the end of the film? Was he guilty or innocent? I think he's innocent. I do. I think they're all innocent, and it's just another massive cock-up by the CIA. Okay. Darren? I've got to admit, I agree for quite a lot of this. I found it really slow in places, parts of it which I found a real slog and even boring. The thing is, this film, it was a film of um, of two parts. You had a really great emotional character-based story with, with Slahi, and everything that he went through, and all the abuses, and all the frustrations, and all these stories like the uh, the prison guard that he sort of started to have a bond with, all these other stories, and that I found really interesting and, and engaging. And in when you consider how long he was there, I mean, when the film sort of comes to a conclusion, it was seven years after that, but he still went through all this. 
And reading up on him, you know, the, the, the fact that he actually forgave the people who held him and everything, and that, that there was so much more to the story that they could have told. And yet, part that didn't work for me was the actual the, the law case drama, because there just wasn't enough in there to, to keep me interested. It was all filing motions and signing paperwork and, and what have you, which is probably, you know, realistic in, in, in what it was, but it didn't make for, for good cinema, even with Jodie Foster, who sort of, you know, it's, you know made, made it actually watchable. But it wasn't an interesting story. I mean, the, the, the interesting part about it is what it would be like for lawyers to be defending someone um, during the war on terror who was basically accused of being a part of 9-11. And there was a very small uh, scene that sort of dealt with that. I, I thought that the storyline with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch but was was really interesting. The fact that he started he had the story arc where he started off as somebody who basically wanted to take this guy pretty much to the, to the death penalty, but started to realise there was a, a possibility that he was sending an innocent going against an innocent man here. I think he had the best line in the film where he's where someone says to him, "You know, somebody's got to pay for this," and he responds with, "Somebody that doesn't mean just anybody." But I think there was so much of the court case, it, it just it just really bogged down the things that I found really interesting in, in moving in this film. I think there was a good, really good film in there. And, but just for me, the stuff that I found interesting and engaging kept taking a backseat that I think sort of, you know, slowed the film down a lot. Ultimately, do you think he was innocent or guilty? I don't know, because when I watch a film like this, I'm very conscious that the uh, the filmmakers are... They're not going from an, an unbiased position. They're, they're, they're leading you, the audience, on some way. So part of the thing of their story, when they're telling a story like this, is they're going to make you think that the guy, it's a miscarriage of justice and the guy is innocent. By sort of humanising the end and, and everything, it pretty much tried to leave you in the oppression that he was definitely innocent. I'm going to put my cards on the table, you guys. I've got a difficulty in reviewing this film. I actually once worked for a company which organised rendition flights for the CIA. That is true. It came to light when they kidnapped and tortured the wrong person on one occasion. Now, with all that information, I can see both sides on this. I think you ought to make it clear that you weren't in that sort of area of that company. I might be, Neil. I I couldn't talk about it if I had been. (laughs) They recruited him for his morals. Yes, that was it. So I see both sides. 70s attitude. Oh, you're the right person for us. Yeah, I see the lawyer side and I see the CIA side. All the legal missteps, the torture used and secretive nature of the whole operation, it's not new to me. I didn't find it shocking. I thought the performances and the characterizations are excellent. Tahir Ramin is excellent with the right level of ambiguity because I actually do think he was guilty. It's just a shame as you go through the film that nobody in the CIA or any of the organisations that brought this guy in thought of gathering the evidence. I thought Jodie Foster, who I normally love, was less impactful in this. She's played this sort of role before far too often. Benedict Cumberpatch, I thought, did really well with his role. But again, I needed more building up of that character and what made him tick, which I didn't seem to get. You know, it had the mechanics of what he uncovered as he went along and the moral dilemma he was in but not who he was. On story-wise, I thought this was interesting. You basically combine two types of legal thrillers you would normally see on screen. One is where the defence lawyer is in an impossible 
uh, position, one where the lawyer uncovers a conspiracy. And, and in fact, in this film, one is the defense, one is the prosecution. I thought, you know, combining those two normal tropes, the legal thrillers was quite good. McDonald does really well at combining that. But the sudden nature of the ending indicates to me, and this is what we've said through this review, I think he'd have been happier if he'd made this a documentary. One of the great parts of this was that the it was very ambiguous as to whether he was guilty or innocent. And I thought that was the clever bit in it. Yes, it does look a bit like a documentary. But this is a tough watch. It's gripping and shocking. Uh, Tahir Rahim is excellent as the wrongly imprisoned man, supposedly wrong. Uh, the face-off between the two attorneys, Jodie Foster and Benedict Cumberbatch, is especially good. I could have had more of Jodie Foster's character. What made her tick? She also defended IRA leader Michael McEvitt, for example. Nancy Hollander, that is not Jodie Foster. The story for me worked well, aided by some excellent cinematography, different lighting and colour for each place, Berlin, Mauritania and Guantanamo, flashbacks in a different ratio, confined frames in prison and widescreen scenes outside. I especially liked, appreciated the lack of torture porn a thriller a thriller it yeah you're right it does sound more like a documentary really but a documentary then that explores various perspectives and character motivations and kevin mcdonald's uh, documentary experience really helped i i quite enjoyed it i thought the mauritanian was a really solid and engrossing drama it plays by the rules laid out in true life dramas and miscarriages of justice and I think its main flaw is it just doesn't push outside of that boundary. It's just happy to be a good example of that type of film, you know, this miscarriage of justice. The bits I, I really liked about it, I liked the complex weaving of flashbacks that they used to tell the story. There's lots of different time frames. Nils just mentioned it. I really like the aspect ratio changes. Was it actually aspect? Yeah, aspect yeah, changes? yeah, yeah. They, they said they used four-three ratio for all the prison scenes, and they had a mm. widescreen for the for all the other bits. So I look when, out for that. <laughs> when you were in prison, you had like this boxy, claustrophobic mm. film, and when you're outside of prison, you had glorious widescreen. And you know, yes. I like that. I, I thought Tahir Rahim was excellent. He's played um, a prisoner before about a decade or so ago in a really good French film that name escapes me. Um, the Prophet. Yeah, that's it. There we go. Um, so hopefully he doesn't get typecast as prisoners. But yeah, I thought he was really, really good. Contrary to your thought, Graham, I really liked the use of Bob Dylan's The Man and Me over the credits with the real life Slahi. I thought it mm. it kind of had that, He's moved on and, you know, there is hope that, you know, he can have a happy life mm. and that sort of thing. I, I quite like that. I just thought it was juxtaposition. You know, you have this all this gruesome torture and then the, the fight and, and the, as, as Neil said, the extended seven years where he's proven innocent, but, you know, he still has to wait seven years. And then suddenly he's listening to, <laughs> to Bob, you Dylan, know, Bob yeah. Dylan. And I thought, yeah, I love that song, but. Yeah, know. I do think it's worth a watch. It's not groundbreaking. It's. It's just a solid, entertaining film. It was, mm. yeah, I think it was yes, fine. I agree with you, Phil. Okay. Just want to add, great review, by the way, but just be careful about upsetting Graham. Okay? <laughs> he knows where all the bodies are buried. He's like our Dominic Cummins, if you will, or possibly even our Fred West. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. So, the Mauritanian, 
Powerful movie, currently showing on Amazon Prime. Moving on, our next review is the equally powerful Promising Young Woman. Every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? Okay. How old am I? What are my hobbies? What's my name? Sorry, maybe that one's too hard. Please note, we're going to discuss this film in quite some detail, and this is a spoiler alert. The best way to see this film is without knowing anything, and if you haven't seen the film yet, I would definitely suggest you move on about 15 minutes past this section, because we are going to discuss major plot points in the film. Cassie Thomas, played by an almost unrecognisable Carrie Mulligan, is a young woman on a mission. Every night she goes out to bars pretending to be very drunk. Her expectation, always realised, is that she will be picked up by a man looking to take advantage of her. And every night she manages to turn the tables on her would-be assaulter. Why is Cassie, one supremacing medical student, doing this? What happened in her life to set her on this course? Neil, does this revenge story work for you? And did you share Cassie's anger? Yes, and I knew nothing about the film, and that was so much better for it. I was absolutely gobsmacked. Kerry Mulligan, take a bow. Playing several versions of herself perfectly, I only know her for a number of romantic period films, The Great Gatsby and Education, Driver, etc., Now she takes on a revenge thriller, lets loose and flies. From the start, the fear for her, the possibility of danger, is palpable and it doesn't let up. But in between, she's wearing pastel dresses and works, sort of, in a coffee shop. And the twists are wonderful. How many has she killed? But, yeah, it just... Yeah, fantastic. I cannot say too much about this. The way she methodically gets around those involved is brutal. Emerald Fennell, writer and director, crafts a fantastic story with a great message, one that goes beyond the usual revenge flick. There's no exploitation theme, no good guides, which is a wonderful twist. We don't see the rape. We don't see flashbacks of Nina at all. And the ending, so tense. Did I see a finger move? Is she... And the payoff. Wow. One of the best films of the year, sharply and boldly presented, and I couldn't tear my eyes away from it. Spoiler alert for later in the show when we talk about what the best film is. As far as I was concerned, of all the Oscar nominations this year, this should have won Best Picture and it should have won Best Actress. Emerald Fennell has crafted a stunning feature film debut. As writer and director, she's made a film that crosses genre boundaries. It takes you to places you wouldn't imagine. There's humour and darkness, and it puts a blazing spotlight on the patriarchal society that protects men and promotes the boys-will-be-boys attitude. And those targets are not just men either in this film. It's anybody who enables that behaviour. Kerry Mulligan is career-best performance in what I think is already a pretty stunning career. Her character has fragility, she has a nihilistic outlook, and it's heartbreaking. And the possibility of redemption just feels just out of reach, like she's never going to get there. 
Um, I really loved how her mum and dad and best friend were looking out for her, but they just didn't know how. The mum and dad, especially, I just it just was heartbreaking how they were kind of enabling her in a way, but they just didn't know how to help her. And I really love the soundtrack. Um, it uses these really sugary pop hits to add lightness to the darkness, and it's great. There's a cover of a Britney Spears song, which I thought was one of the moments of the film. And who would have thought that Paris Hilton's Stars Are Blind would be the background <laughs> to a classic <laughs> moment in film? Because it is. It's a great that scene. scene is fantastic, isn't it? A decade from now, there'd be you know, people coming along to this film and they'd be thinking, oh, this is such an amazing song. But just because of the quality of that scene yeah. and then they discover it's a Paris Hilton song <laughs> <laughs> I just loved everything about it and thanks to the fact that it was a home release I've already seen it multiple times it's brilliant okay you talk about the parents and the parents can't reach out to her but do you think that's a two-way thing she's antagonistic towards the parents and she doesn't meet them part way she doesn't talk about what her feelings what her issues are so it's almost like a generational breakdown between the two? Yeah, well, she's just completely unable to talk to anybody about it, isn't she? She, can't, she doesn't talk to her best friend about it. She doesn't talk to her parents. There's a really heartbreaking scene where she goes and visits Nina's mother and, and even the mother like just doesn't know what to do with her. And she just says to her, just stop doing what you're doing. It's, you know, it's hurting you. She can't communicate with anybody about it. And that's kind of why... The subplot with um, the guy is even more heartbreaking because Ugh. there's a moment of light and you think that something might be there, but you also kind of know that you know the film hasn't had that much lightness in it up to that point and you're not sure what's going to happen. Graham? Yeah. yeah, I also hadn't seen or knew anything about this and went in blind. And there was a moment when I thought this was a Jeff classic deception movie you know you know neil the one where jeff tells us no it's not a horror film it's a thriller <laughs> come on guys would i lie to you yeah and, when, she, I, and when she's supposedly killing people at the beginning i was going oh for goodness sake jeff what have you put us in put us up to yeah there was that moment at the end of the film where i thought oh no they're all gonna die in the most horrible way in that cabin in the woods yeah to the gore fest, but um, then it went somewhere Somewhere I had really not expected. It is a horror film, but not in the usual sense. You know, it is very, very disturbing. And Carrie Mulligan's performance, as everybody said, is incredible. I mean, she walks that fine line between cute, attractive little girl, um, lost and a capable, strong woman. And I just thought that was just the way she switched and the speed she switched was great. I loved that her character is called Cassandra, you know, like the priestess of Apollo, cursed to tell the truth and never be believed. And also she is an avenging angel. I mean, when the lawyer has the breakdown, she puts her arm on his back and she says, I forgive you. It's like giving him absolution. Mm. Um, I just loved everything about it. I thought the music, as Phil said, was great. I also thought the score was great. You know, those melancholy, lilting musical structures on top of rage and violence. Yeah, it was great. The scene with the pillow was just gruesome. And I was so worried at the end. But then, as you realize, she puts herself in harm's way. Every time she went home with a nice guy, 
And it just took one little thing to make it all go wrong. And that one little thing did happen. And she was in a world of trouble. That pillow sequence, by the way, is timed to how long it would actually be to kill a person oh, by suffocating God. them with a pillow. So it was played out real time. Yeah, well, thank you for that. If I learned little things like that. Darren. I've been waiting to see this movie for ages, and I did start to feel that I was one of the last people on on Earth to actually see it, because every time I went on Twitter, somebody was bragging that they'd got an advanced screening at some point and everything. So I was getting really jealous, I've got to say, but I'm glad to say that finally I got to see it, and this movie did not disappoint. I've seen... A lot of sort of the sort of rape revenge movies, you know, most of them sort of like with an exploitation edge. Although recently with their films like MFA and and Revenge, there's been a more sort of like subverting the genre for a more feminist perspective. I found that the, uh, the Carrie Mulligan character just absolutely fascinating because she had very ambiguous motivations. You, you sort of learnt why she was doing it, but it was ambiguous of, of what her actual end game was. And, you know, because she wasn't out to kill. She wasn't on, on sort of like a sadistic street. She really came across that she was maybe trying to, you could say, educate or just prevent future um, offenders by practically scaring the hell out of them and stripping them of the power. I mean, I, th- I thought it was like a really subtle thing that whenever the men found out that she wasn't actually drunk, the actual fear that basically just overcame them when they basically realised that they'd lost the upper hand, I thought that was like, you know, really, really interesting aspect that she had. And even those that she actually was taking direct revenge against because they'd had a directly effect of what had happened to her friend, she was basically just making them have the fear and the powerlessness that they'd basically subjected onto the victims themselves, but not necessarily by the actual you know, assault itself, but just by basically sort of like the silence or covering up. You know, there's a, there's a lot of sins involved with, with rape. It's not just the rapist that's fault. You know, society's attitude and judgment, you know, towards the victim and the victim blaming, and it you know brought those all out. As a viewer, you were kind of shocked because it gave the impression when when she was ticking off that she actually was killing these people. The uh, the headmaster's daughter, you you for a while you're under the impression that she'd actually kidnapped her and done something awful to her. You got the feeling that she'd arranged for her friend to be raped while drunk. It turned out she just basically wanted them to fear the possibility of that happening. I, I've got to say the thing about this that really made me tense is you knew at some point that her luck was going to run out. And at the end, when she was going to that, you really got this feeling that she was going possibly to her death. And I, I need to watch this again because I still don't know how I feel about the ending. Because I felt, you know, when what happened happened, I felt absolutely really, really sick and, and just for, for her to meet her and like that. But at the same time, she got the last laugh. But it was like, and, and that final moment, what was funny and really well done. So she sort of won in the end. In my mind, I couldn't basically sort of justify the price that she had to pay for that. That, that left me with a, a very strange fit feeling. It was a film that had a very definite manifesto and a political thing of what it was trying to say, but that didn't stop it or get it in the way of it being an entertaining thriller. And the fact that it was an entertaining thriller did not get in the way of the manifesto message that it was trying to promote. I thought it was like, you know, a really subversive, really well done done film. And there are interesting questions, which I want to pick up in part now. 
But I just want to say, you know, watching this film, for some reason, every now and again, the American Supreme Court came into my mind. I have no idea why. I guess it was something to do with justice. Picking up on what Darren was saying, I mean, the inspiration for this case was the Brock Turner incident where the judge, when sentencing and giving a very light sentence to this foul individual for his horrific rape crime, described him as a promising young man. Raping a drunk woman who had passed out on a campus floor makes him anything but a promising young man in my eyes. Now, I did have a problem at the start of this film because obviously it starts off with this drunk woman who's taken home with this guy. And I kept thinking, well, where's Carrie Mulligan? She's going to come in in a minute and hmm. rescue this woman. It took me about 10, 15 minutes to realise, oh, sodden hell, that is Carrie Mulligan. Not only is she so different on screen in terms of what she looked like, but in terms of performance, I've never seen her do anything like this before. She didn't just act. She was the role. I think it's one of the best film performances for years. She should have won that Best Actress Oscar. Mm -hmm. we, you know, we'll come on and talk about Nomadland in a minute, which I love. But in terms of Best Actress, this is a performance from an actress who I didn't think had this range. It was just stunning. And the film itself, you know, it's caustic, it's acid dripping. You know, it's a rape revenge movie, but unlike any you've ever seen, the nearest I could think of as a comparison is something like Sudden Impact, Darren was mentioned earlier about, you know, exploitation films and Clint Eastwood's films certainly is that. And there are many plot elements there that link to this. This film, as powerful as it is, I'm not sure of it becoming best film because there should be more balance. And I go back to the Brock Turner incident. In this film, every male character, with the exception of the father, brilliantly played as he is by Clancy Brown, has hidden agendas is open to the type of abuse, you know, against women that the film is about. But if you look at the Brock Turner incident, what happened there? Two men saw him and ended that incident. They were the ones that reported it and, and put it through the process. In this movie, there is no balance. Every man outside of the father is bad. But don't you think the film's told from the perspective of this woman who has had a situation that has coloured her perspective and she only puts herself in a position where she meets that type of man. And you make another interesting point there, Phil, and I don't want to go against this film because I think it's a wonderful film. I think it is a really good film. But other critics have picked up, and I remember the, the critic on Roger Ebert's site who reviewed this film made a really valid argument. What we're seeing is the impact on the Carrie Mulligan's character. We're not seeing Nina's story. Nina's story is the real tragedy of this movie. What happened to that woman is disgusting. It's sick. Yes, of course it is. She decided that they would go with, because they grew up together, they were almost one person. And the whole revenge stories are based around the fact um, that of uh, Cassie, because she feels she isn't whole anymore. She isn't a whole person because she's met, she's lost this person that she's always been with. And she like a feels she didn't family. do enough to help her. Yes, there's that guilt there as well. Not that she was should feel guilty, but she does feel guilty not being there. Um, I mean, she gave up everything. But hmm. it's it's not her fault. She's carrying unconscious no. guilt. You know, should the film be around the real victim? Yeah. But I thought it was better for being that instead of the exploitation and, bit where you see the comment. rape and, and, and you see no, this and yeah, you see that. Yeah, and what you're saying is fair comment. 
but rape victims and rape survivors say it's wrong. And that's the point that they're making. A rape or a serious assault of this nature impacts not just on the person, it ripples out into the lives of others. In this case, it results in at least one other person dying. The point that all these other families, all these other lives are destroyed is valid. And I think, you know, where Emerald is going with this is really important. But I also understand, you know, the other people who are saying that the real person, Nina, is only referred to and never seen. And what I what I think about this, and I'll sum it up and then we'll move on, is it makes a great talking point. I'm not quite with Phil that I see this as winning the best film Oscar. I, I, I think it has some really good points, but as I said, I think there are some points where it falls a little short. But on performances, it is an astonishing piece of work. And the conversation we've just had, I hope anybody listening to this you know, them with their friends, they have the same conversation because these are things we should be talking about. And in that sense, this is a really, really important film. That's our thoughts on the Oscar-winning film Promising Young Woman. Let's talk more awards with our next feature, Nomadland. In the wake of the financial crash of 2008, many impoverished Americans lost their homes, becoming an almost nomadic tribe in search of seasonal work. Nomadland follows a year in the life of one such person. Fern, an Oscar-winning performance from Frances McDormand, travels across America in her van in pursuit of temporary employment. From being a part-time worker at Amazon at year-end, to summers spent in seasonal holiday work. Her life is travelling and the occasional meeting with friends in the same situation. Confirm, change her circumstances, or would she if she could? Jeff, Nomadland was the winner of the Best Film Oscar this year. I know you like to be contrary, so I can't wait to hear if you think it was a worthy winner. Surprisingly, I did, and... I went into it with quite low expectations from some of the things that I'd heard, but it really blew me away. I mean, this is inspired by the non-fiction book from Jessica Bruder, and as a film, it utilises the best of 70s avant-garde American cinema techniques. It feels real, because ultimately it is. Oscar-winning star Frances McDormand lived the part, and by the way, that scene where she's... Uh, using the bucket as a toilet was actually for real because she had yes, the run was, that day. Yeah. <laughs> Francis McDormand lived amongst the real nomads or really, as I like to call them, survivors. These are the human fallout of the 2008 recession. And if you like, if you go back to a, another great film of recent years, The Big Short, there's a scene there where Brad Pitt talks to the two lads who are cheering because they've just made a mint. And he tells them, well, what you're celebrating, essentially, is what this film is, what will happen to these people. Now, I just want to go back to the beginning when I said about my comment on 70s cinema. Nomadland uses storytelling techniques as explored in such movies as Five Easy Pieces. It breaks down a narrative structure. Or the first act of The Deer Hunter, in which the, you can't tell who the real actors are and who the local people that they brought into the film are. More up-to-date, something like The Florida Project, for example. I think what surprised me is this film is told without anger. These are people that have accepted their fate. 
The only time this becomes different in the movie is the memorable scene where people are at a barbecue discussing real estate. And there, one of the characters does express that anger. Ultimately, this is a film about a country and a moment that's let down its citizens. And it laid the groundworks for the rise of Donald Trump. And also, I guess, in this country, the fallout we had, that clown Johnson. And yet, taken even broader and further back, it's an examination of Americana, the roots of the country itself. The final scene at the deserted house leads to a reverse John Ford Searches doorway shot, Fern like Wayne, is no longer part of that life, doomed to travel the plains and the great country of America, which is shown in amazing detail. And she can never settle down, and that's partly through the circumstances of the 2008 crash, and partly in coming to terms, I think, with personal tragedy. This is a haunting study of the failure of a nation, told with grace through the performances of McDormand, Strathern, and a cast of amateurs. Finally, full credit to uh, Ludovico Inuardi for one of the most simple and effective scores in a long time and a bit of which we heard at the beginning of this review. Just like this film, really. And yes, to go back to the original question, this is a very worthy Oscar winner. Darren, over to you. Yeah, I mean, I went into watching this film with a lot of trepidation because from what I'd heard about it... and I think the film does get a little of a, a bad rap for, for this. It comes across as it sounds like it's a really bleak, depressing story. I think it's far from it. I think there's a lot of optimism in this film. And it's a story that deals with themes around struggling with poverty, for people who have lost their way. Um, you know, the core of it, it's about the goodness in people. Even though that these are people sort of down on, on the lock, They've managed to make a life of themselves. As everywhere that the Frances McDormand character went on, she met good people, interesting people, who she, she stuck up bonds with. These outsiders, the communities that they made, that where they would actually look after each other, they would have these sort of big communal uh, you know, dinners and, and they would help each other, you know, make sure it's all that. And, and I found that re- really, really moving. With the four years that America has had under Donald Trump, I always would get annoyed because I know a lot of Americans and I would get annoyed when my, when my friends in this country would basically slag off Americans say how selfish they were, how they showed America's true colours. And that's not the case. There's still, for me, far more good people in the world and far more good people in America than there are bad people. This gave an, an alternative way of living that valued people and what people could do for each other as opposed to how much money they could make. I did find it quite interesting the way they were making their money, they, they were their living was working these small jobs for a place like Amazon and for um, TFI Friday style restaurant. And these were places that they, they were sort of working in, but they were denied the fruits of what, you know, that they, they themselves could not afford to have the nice food that was being served to them. They couldn't afford to buy the things that Amazon, that they were basically packaging and sending off to rich people. They, they were sort of denied that. And uh, it's, it's interesting as well, obviously, with the, uh, you know, with the year that we've had with the unpleasantness, we, we've sort of come to realise that people like those people who are doing those jobs are, are the people that we really need in this world. That when, when COVID hit and the chips were down, those were the people that kept things running as opposed to all the marketing directors and all these other worthless um, roles that the, that the super rich have. I thought the film looked beautiful. 
I think it really expressed how inspiring uh, the, you know, the American landscape had this like, really beautiful, rustic feel. You know, the sunsets and you know, were, were absolutely amazing. And it, and it was that thing that these were people who could appreciate that because they had the time to take it in. To be, be honest, there wasn't really a story as such. It was just like a, you know, a collection of of experiences and things that happened. I mean, it, it felt at times like they were just following Francis McDormand around with a camera and just seeing what happened now she interacted with each other which i felt i felt it was a you know a really you know wonderful way of 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 spending a couple of hours in this film you can argue that it basically romanticized certain elements of of that way of life it made it seem like really appealing and free it's not for everyone i mean i saw that and i thought you know that would be a wonderful way to just walk away from sort of you know the you know the regular you know life and, and, and sort of set out on the road and have this free on the road experience. But it really did make you feel that, that modern society is is missing something, that these people are sort of tapped into that bit. And I thought it was a, a wonderful movie. I just want to pick up on your point, you said that it didn't have a story, but didn't you think that end where she goes back to her house and couldn't ever go back to that life, even if she was offered the keys to it, wouldn't take it? that that's an ending that, you know, this woman has moved on. She's become something different. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there, there was experiences that she, that she, went, she went on, but that, that wasn't something that was running through the entire film. It was like an experience at the end of the story. It didn't feel as I was watching it that there was like a story running through it. It was more sort of, you know, a, a year in the life in it of, of experiences. You know, but yeah, I mean, there was there was growth in there. Don't, don't get me wrong, but as I was watching it, there wasn't like a sort of like you know, a straight sort of you know middle beginning and end story to it. As, as that I could come up, I, I just felt I was basically in the company of someone who was on a road, was basically pretty much on her own road trip. Graham, yeah, I had a very different approach to this film. I I thought. This was incredible, absolutely incredible. I, I just can't praise this film highly enough. I mean, how on earth did an art house movie win Best Picture? I mean, it's just great. I mean, this is this film is an anomaly. It's a glitch in the Matrix. I mean, um, can I just stop you there? In the seventies, yeah. this would have been mainstream. Yeah, but we haven't seen anything like this for a good forty years, Jeff. I mean, it is so different and worked on so many levels it was just so layered and I, I agree with what all of you have said but to me there was also another story running underneath I mean you know me I love story structure plotting pacing and this film has none of that as, as Darren's just said it, uh, it's just a visual stream of consciousness and, and you know it's just like Joyce's Fregen's wake and it's as impenetrable as that and it's it's just a sliver of life captured digitally and frozen. I mean, I usually write my notes as I'm as I'm watching a film. I'll write my notes, or, or immediately afterwards, I'll write my notes, and they're always in very clear sentences, and, and there's a little bit of structure. But, but when I read my notes on this film, it was just bullet points. That's all I had. I just words. There was I just wrote things like melancholy, serenity, hardship, heartache, the transitory nature of possessions. Is Francis McDermott? acting or is she just in this film the music is captivating but this is the music of melancholia 
There's no striving in this film. It's just drifting. And there's just this constant sense of grief and the end of things and everything seems to be ending. And, you know, the character of Swanky keeps talking about her grandchildren as the future because her, her life is ending. And for me, it's a huge discussion on the nature of America and what's happened in America. So it's Jeff and I have talked a lot about this film because it is a, a sort of a Western but in, the problem is that the settlers have become the nomads. You know, these people who were settled in one place, now they're up and moving around. And, and the white man of America has now become the native and ferns in a part of a tribe now. And you, you see constant references to, to Westerns in it, the return of the buffalo, the nude scene with her in the, in the lake, the connection to rocks and earth and the vastness of the scenery and the smallness of the people. You know, and small town America becoming a wasteland. It's just, it's like the grapes of wrath, but it, but it isn't. And all the time I could keep, kept thinking of Sergio Leone and Mad Max and things like that. And the other thing I thought was brilliant was the, the sonnet by Shakespeare. I thought that was great. So I compare thee to a summer's day. When everything else is crumbling, art remains. So, yeah, I thought it was just wow. I watched it and then the next night I watched it again. And will I watch it again? Probably not this year, because it just really hit me. This film, I just thought, was fantastic. This year in at the movies seems to have been a weird one, and uh, my son described it as Dad's year of weird film shit, because I watched Inherent Vice, The Art of Self-Defense, Mank, and now this odd and quirky is the hallmark of my watching experience for this year. It's absolutely great, and I cannot fault it, and I cannot understand why it was Best Picture. This is the absolute polar end of Godzilla versus Kong. That's what film can be. It can be that big, crushy, bashy, smashy, and it can be this beautiful, nuanced, clever, intelligent film. I just think it was great. And I believe you got comments from one of our listeners that sent yes. them in asking to be read out in the show. We had a comment from a long-time listener, Paul. He said... So, Nomadland, what are your thoughts? I watched it last week and watched it again over the weekend with his wife because she hadn't seen it. I find it boring and slow, but also wonderfully acted and interesting. How's that for a diverse review? It was such an easy film to drift out of as it seems to go through constant repeat cycles. But on the second watch, I could see how each cycle gave you a bit more of Francis McDermott's character depth. I find it interesting, and she ceased to become a character per se, and you saw everything through her eyes. Here's what I think, though. It's an Oscar film that isn't really a cinema film. I really think, as a film, it's helped by discussion during it as opposed to after it, and that's something quite unique. I sort of echoed that in my thoughts, that I thought it was this is a film that should be seen with friends uh, or even Jeff and Neil, because afterwards you could go to the pub and pick it to pieces. And, yeah, it's definitely a film that needs discussion. I loved it. Okay. So after all those positive reviews, let's go to Phil. So um, apparently I'm the contrary in this episode. Maybe it was the weight of expectation but I found this film to be a crushing disappointment. The context for that is that this film won the Venice Film Festival in September 2020. It generated huge awards buzz for the entire award season. So essentially January to April of this year, that's all we heard about how amazing it was and it's winning everything. It then won Best Actress, Best Picture, Best Director at the Oscars. 
at the end of April when it still hadn't come out over here. And obviously, because, you know, I'm a film buff, I follow all of that. This film's going to be amazing, right? It's won everything. It's brilliant. It's got a lot of baggage. And it's just a documentary veiled as a film. And I, I didn't get it. I mean, no, 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 I, no. I think it's the weakest of all the films nominated for Best Picture this year. Um, and when we can talk about films that didn't get nominated and all the rest of it, but if you just look at the films nominated for Best Picture this year, I thought this was the worst one. Yeah, not that it's bad, but it's just not as good as any of the others. Zhao creates some beautiful moments. I get what some of you are saying. You know, she draws some decent performances from basically a bunch of amateur actors. Frances McDormand's performance is brave and raw, but she's also just a pseudo-documentarian. There were moments when I thought Louis Farouk was going to show up. There were some bits, certainly towards the beginning, where she just stands around with people and asks them questions. And it's just, it's not a film, it's a documentary. And I just was getting frustrated and bored. For me, the most stunning aspects of the film is when it went full Terence Malick. So there are bits when there are like montages of stunning photography, of nature, and the score's really lovely. And you've got Francis McDormand uh, narrating with Shakespeare, you know, and you know you might as well have got Terence Malick to sort of give some advice on how else she could make it more abstract and all that sort of things. In those bits you can sense the yearning for something that Fern holds and it's actually up on screen. But otherwise, you know, everything that you guys have said about it is why I think it's really boring and should just have been a documentary. For me, it's something to be admired rather than enjoyed. Are you sitting on a chair at the moment, Phil? Yeah. Could you have a look underneath for me, please? Why is that? (laughs) Your soul might have dropped out and you might actually be on the floor there. I just, honestly, guys, I just thought it was boring. And and you were saying earlier about the Mauritanian should have been a documentary. This should have been a documentary. There's an interesting, there's interesting stuff here and it's beautifully shot, but it's not a film. It's... Uh, I- but wow. it, and I think this comes back to the point you said it's abstract. I think it's impressionist. When the abstract artists and the impressionist artists first came out, people were going, "Well, it doesn't look like anything, does it? Well, it doesn't look like a film. It's 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 not it's art house. It's not a film. It's it's something else, but it's in the film medium, no, and it's brilliant. It, it's it's a film in that you see this character come to terms with who she is in that lifestyle and in that era. Okay, I agree with you, Phil, that it does have a documentary feel, but in but I don't agree that it uh, it, it spoils it. I think it helps it. Frances McDormand, David Strathairn are the only actors, as we've said, and everyone else was an actual nomad. And they all spoke in a matter-of-fact way. I think that is the documentary bit. There was so little small talk. It was where did you come from, personal history, inspection of vans, this needed doing on them, etc. Where are you going next? What can I do to help? The dramas are generally related to van issues, and it's all told in a very, very matter-of-fact way. And they all had sad and very uplifting tales to tell. Clojo deserves all the credit she gets for pulling a story out of these non-actors, and all of them have stories to tell. And I guess... It does sound very documentary, but I think it isn't as bad as you say, Phil, I'm afraid. Uh, And she 
wrote and directed, and I think she edited the film as well, didn't she? The moments with Bob Wells of the support group, my favourite, was the most interesting. I really wanted to hear his Ten Commandments of Stealth Parking, but we didn't get that, I'm afraid. Uh, Brief quotations of Shakespeare almost drag you out of the film as a counterpoint to the almost matter-of-fact of the nomads. And McDormand is excellent. How many times have we said that? A film that exposes America, one of the most powerful nations on Earth, as a place where people get forgotten, ignored, and it's scandalous. The irony of all of them working Christmas at Amazon packing is ridiculous. It's a must-watch. And let's be fair, Chloe Zoe has been punished enough for making a film as good as this, because I believe her next film is some Marvel tripe. We, we, we've seen this sort of narrative in films before. I mean, but the one that springs to mind was the, the wrestler with Mickey Rogue, where there's lots of scenes in there, like the, the supermarket or when he's at wrestling shows, where he's like reacting to what's going on around, what's going on as everyday stuff. So I don't think that because it mixes realism with sort of with, with a story means that it is a, a documentary as such. It just, you know, we've, we've seen this sort of way of, of making a film before. And I think we'll draw it there. I'm sure there's we, there's a lot more we could have said. We could do a whole podcast on this. But Nomadland is available on Disney Star and is currently shown in selected cinemas. Now, as you can see from that, it's certainly split opinion with our panel. But what do you think? Do you have a view on it? Like our listener, Paul, who felt so strongly about it, he had to give us some words to read out in the show. Please let us know what you think. Meanwhile, we will move on to our final review of the month as we turn up the volume for Sound of Metal. You sound great. Yeah, right. What? You're telling me you weren't feeling it? You were in it. I found a place. I think it's important that you stay here with us right now, Ruben. The world does keep moving. It can be a damn cruel place. But those moments of stillness when this crappy mundane world suddenly becomes radiant and magnificent all the fear is gone that place will never abandon Ruben, an Oscar-nominated performance from Riz Ahmed, has finally got his life together. A recovering drug addict, he is now a drummer in a metal band, Black Gammon. The other member of the group is Ruben's girlfriend, Lou, played by Olivia Cook. All continues to go well until the day Ruben suffers a major hearing loss. It is a loss which could well be permanent. How will Ruben cope with this tragic turn of events? Darren, were you impressed with Riz Ahmed's performance? Well, if you mean impressed in that this film absolutely broke me on an emotional level, then yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty goddamn outstanding. The first part of this film is such a, a roller coaster with Riz Ahmed going through the horror of losing one of his senses, which which for anybody would be a nightmare, but especially if that sense is connected to your whole way of life. There's a, there's a moment when he starts to lose his hearing and where he holds his nose and he's desperately trying to make his ears pop in desperation. It's just a heartbreaking scene. 
the thing I, I liked about this film, and it, and it reminded me of something that you were getting a um, those Alan Bennett monologues, the, the talking head head ones. There's always something special when there's a character in a film, and you can see something that that character can't. And, and for me, that it, what I mean by that is, you could see when he joined the community of of, uh, of deaf people. You could see that he actually was really benefiting from that way of life, even though his real passion and, and life was for music. When you see at the start of the film, there's, there's, an, there's an implication that he's basically he's, he's unhealthy. There's, there's, there's hints that him and his girlfriend might be addicted to drugs. There's certainly got a history of it. You can see scars on her thing. So even though you have something which is your passion and that you want, that doesn't necessarily mean that that is the best thing for you. And you could see that he, when he, this, this like teaching role he was doing in the in the deaf community in this commune, he was good at it and he was getting happy. But you could see that he was at some point going to throw it all away because he couldn't cut himself off with his with the outside world like he wanted his hearing back and he wanted to get back into his old lifestyle him trying to fix himself as you know and there's several metaphors for that throughout the film um i mean naturally one of the things i liked about this film as well is is, is the use of sound i mean let's face it whenever you hear the, the sound and the sound editing categories and the um in, in the Oscars, you don't really re- remember them. They're very technical. But in this one, sound was a real character in, in the film. You know, you sort of, you know, going through his his deafness when he was basically getting his hearing back. It, this this really weird distorted hearing that he, he was, uh, you know, stuck with. The fact that at the start of a film, that the music would be absolutely deafening and really loud that you could basically make anything out and for so much of the other film it was absolute silence you know the, the ending scene the really ambiguous scene at the end where he's just sat there in silence i thought it was really moving i i i thought this film was amazing it, incidentally paul rachie who uh, he played the, uh, the the community leader of uh, the, the, the deaf gentleman he did an absolutely fascinating interview in uh, Film Stories magazine a couple of months ago about this film and uh, what what it means to be sort of like an, an actor who is deaf. And, and I really do, you know, if you can track that down, I, I, that is a really sort of, I mean, Film Stories is a great magazine anyway. It's, it's a real film fans magazine. I, I, I recommend it. But yeah, that, that's a really interesting interview. If, if you're inspired by this film to learn more, that's a really good place to start. Phil? I am going to agree on this one. So Riz Ahmed is absolutely amazing in general and in this film. He did two films based around musical characters in the last year and both are really thought-provoking. This is the better one, but if you are interested, Mogul Mowgli is a really good thought-provoking film. He delivers an amazing rap performance in that um, at the beginning and in this did, one. He did you say rap? Yeah, yeah. So he, I mean, Riz Ahmed's actually a rapper as well. You can, he's released albums. Has he? So, yeah, yeah. So um, I found the opening two thirds of this movie absolutely riveting. Ahmed is fantastic. There's an emotional roller coaster that he takes us through. It's really profound. And I really connected with the panic and fear in those initial stages of him losing his hearing. When he arrives at Joe's retreat, We're also introduced to another amazing character. I really wanted to learn more about him. Joe has a great story and life similar to Ruben. Um, I'm going to call him Paul Racy because he's probably responsible, accountable, consulted and informed. Um, 
He's a fairly unknown actor to me. That was a brilliant joke, guys. Why are you laughing? <laughs> yeah. um, Had my sound down. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's an unknown actor to me. I hadn't seen him in anything, and I thought he was great. Um, yeah, definitely. He, he was nominated um, for supporting actor, and I thought he would have a real outside chance because he's really good in this. Uh, the sound wizardry is absolutely brilliant. I suppose it should be for a film about sound. And I really liked the idea about deafness isn't a problem to fix and that Ruben should manage his transition from a hearing world to a non-hearing world. I thought it was quietly revelatory um, to me that this isn't something to fix, it's something to just adjust to. And the way that the whole film was um, structured around his addiction and how they used his addiction as a way of sort of saying, this is how you need to transition from you know, an alcoholic drug addict to a sober person, from a, a hearing person to a non-hearing person. I did find the final third slightly less engaging because Olivia Cook kind of disappears for most of the film. And the final third is quite reliant on her character and her relationship with Ruben. And I found it a little bit jarring when she came back in and, and it pulled me out slightly. But mm. um, Darren's just mentioned it. The final moment, the final scene is perfect. Mm. It's just great. Um, mm. So, yeah, I really liked it. Okay, Neil. The difficulty of accepting you are deaf. Joe, the Paul Racy character, um, I'm going to call him Racy as well. But uh, all to- joking aside, Neil, you are heading that way. Well, I am. I am almost. I have the same sort of problem as um, he does in one ear. I took a, several goes to get past the opening first act. Deafening noise, and he goes deaf. Uh, well, sure, it's probably what ha- happened to me. Deep Purple concert, probably in nineteen seventy-six. Um, but as the film goes on, I understand the use of the sound right down to the final scene and silence. Ruben finally accepts he's deaf. Uh, Riz Ahmed is excellent to use a non-deaf actor in the role. Could be considered controversial, but in this case, I don't think so. Ruben has hearing and loses it, or most of it. The frustration is palpable, and he needs to be seen as an outsider in a community of deaf people, a newly deaf. He steals every scene and chews the scenery, berating, blaming everything for his predicament. And yes, I can empathise. I wrote several versions of this where I was writing that, yes, I get that, I get that. Um, A number of times he has to say, I can't be hear you. Yep, done that, been there. Um, I didn't recognise the excellent Olivia Cook at first, although her character is sidelined somewhat to make way for Ruben. Joe, played by Paul Racy, is excellent as the focal point for Ruben's anger. Racy, a jobbing actor, is, is an actual Vietnam vet. His calmness dealing with Ruben was superb, and his change towards him at the end was a difficult watch. He deserves his Oscar nomination. All in all, a Riz Ahmed show and a great watch. Graham. There is a joke in the world of uh, fans of heavy metal music that no matter which metal band you mention, somebody will always say, that's not metal. There's even a podcast called That's Not Metal. But this film is as metal as F. I mean, I watched it with headphones on because I was advised, oh, no, no, you've got to get the sonic experience. Listen to (laughs) it. 
film is a visual medium, but just like A Quiet Place, the soundscape of this film was so important. I loved it. I enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, This is a film about belonging. That's what I felt it was, about finding your place in the world and acceptance and and it's an emotional roller coaster, as Phil said. And what a ride! Uh, Ruben, uh, played by Riz Ahmed, is so good and believable. I wanted to go and buy a Black Gammon album after I'd watched the film. I mean, I, I also liked Olivia Cook's character, Lou. And she also goes on her own journey of discovery, you know, from the scary white eyebrows to looking like a normal person was quite a change. <laughs> Normal person. That's an old person thing to say. <laughs> he looked nice in I, the end. I, I must say, Graham, I started through the, through the first act and wanted to burn everything of Black Diamond's <laughs> albums. Absolutely correct, horrible. That's the correct old man approach to that. Yes, yes still right. better than rap music. <laughs> well, maybe it is, but... The, the, the other thing I liked about this film is that it's so well put together. It tells... A really interesting story, very well. It's uh, another one of the multitude of films I wish I'd seen at the f- at the cinema for the complete immersion of the soundscape. Actually, I did spot a very interesting nugget in this movie. Uh, Ruben wears an Eisendersen Nabratan T-shirt in the film, and that's a band, a German band called Storming New Buildings in in English who are renowned for the fact that they use pieces of scrap metal and power tools to construct their music. Quite literally, the sound of metal. And I do like a good visual gag. Does uh, Listener of the Month, Frank, like uh, (laughs) sound of metal? And like metal music, for all I know? No, no, absolutely not. I'm with him. Unless it's Californian hair metal, then you might be. uh, (laughs) I think Jeff should be listening to uh, Riz Ahmed's album as uh, uh, parents after this. Yes, absolutely. I go back to what Bruce Willis said in The Last Boy Scout. If you want to hear me scream in pain, put me next to a speaker playing rap music. (laughs) Uh, Right, okay. Well, they're all great reviews, and it is a good film, but there is something fundamentally wrong here that you're all missing. The Sound of Metal can best be described as the Al-Qaeda of disabled movies. (laughs) There's no argument against its aim in presenting and understanding the condition. I mean, it is based on a true story of the heavy metal band Jucifer. However, it comes across as fundamentalist as Iran in approach. The deaf shelter home as a policy of acceptance of deafness. And Phil, you mentioned this in your review. Any attempts to use science to improve the condition results in an immediate ban. And of course, rock music by this lot is hated. It might as well be Amish, to be honest. And <laughs> Normal services point... resumed. The, the <laughs> point about it was that they aren't able to get uh, medical attention to it. So that but is the reason. But he did get reason. medical attention to it. He, he did. It. Yeah. And, yes, and that's because, why he wasn't needed to be yeah, in that place. You know, that place is for people earlier, for accepting it. The stake. He was the one who wasn't ex- prepared to just accept it. But why should you accept it? Uh, he had the choice, lucky for him. He sold everything. He's still got nothing at the end of it. Because I, I thought that that was really well conveyed in the film because it's they're not saying you can't do that, but what they are saying is that if you want to be part of their community, these people who, like Neil said, can't afford it, 
they need to be able to accept and transition into their deafness. And be accepted. So, so they can't have somebody as part of the community that undermines that. And exactly. I saw that kind of like going back to this whole, the way it was uh, shaped around his addiction in the same way that if you are a part of, you know, a group like Alcoholics Anonymous, et cetera, you can't have somebody come in and undermine that because you all have to pull together and, and look at the same philosophy. Do you find a moment where you can sit down and be absolutely quiet and you accept your death and he does at the end by taking the yeah. hearing aids out? Okay, so let's move on because time is drooling on us. As a film, I'll step aside from the sub, the evil subtext of the film. It's slightly overlong, but I did find it absorbing. I was entertained. There's some great performance, Riz Ahmed. And to be honest, I didn't initially recognize Olivia Cook. I was having a promising young woman moment where thinking, I sort of know that actress, but I don't know where. But again, Paul Racy, I thought, was tremendous as well. Uh, his life story is incredible. And I think it would make a great film on its own. But I would also say, and this is a conversation I've had with Graham, that this is a film designed for cinema. You're placed into the world of a deaf person and its soundscape is very convincing. Imagine that in the dark would be quite impressive. I know, Graham, you listen to it through headphones. It doesn't have a traditional music score. I think, again, in a cinema, all of this would be much more effective than just watching it, say, on a couch, watching it on a TV. Thank you, guys, for your thoughts on Sound of Metal, which can be found on Amazon Prime. Let's go over to Darren's Dash for some other recommendations. Let it begin. The last humans must be here somewhere. Wait. They're coming. Is that a burnt orange 1993 station wagon? Or is it? Ah! Who are these unstoppable warriors? We're the Mitchells, the only people who can save the world. The first film up this time is The Mitchells vs. The Machines, which is an animated movie that's just dropped on Netflix. And this is the story of a young nerdy girl called Katie, who is a massive film fan, she uh, she makes her own little movies starring her dog and her uh, little brother who's obsessed with dinosaurs. And she's all set to go to film school and she embarks on a road trip with her parents to take her over there. Just as her whole life seems to be opening up in front of her, a brand new phone app is released which starts a robot apocalypse and almost all of humanity is imprisoned except for her and her family and they're the last humans and they're the ones who have to basically save the earth from robot invasion this movie was an absolute joy to watch and most of what i'm going to say sounds an absolute cliche when you watch an animated movie like this but it really is one for the whole family aside from looking spectacular it's got this really crazy punk rock aesthetic in places it's genuinely funny. I mean, again, it's another cliche saying this, but it's one that adults will get the humour as much as kids. There's a great family here where, oh, I've got the quirks. The dad absolutely hates technology. The the mummy's obsessed with this perfect family who have the complete opposite of them. They have a, a little brother who, like I say, is obsessed with dinosaurs. He actually spends his day basically just ringing strangers up in the phone book and asking if they want to talk about dinosaurs with him. 
even the dog's weird. The dog's have got this like cross-eyed condition that the mum's always trying to basically sort of snap him out of. It's just a really funny, quirky film. It's one of those films that invites you to take away what you want from it. There's so many themes here. You can talk about the um, embracing family over technology. Like I said, the dad's real sort of technophobe and he's constantly get, trying to get them to basically have like just 10 minutes a day without looking at the mobile phones and everything. There's, that was great, stuff, wasn't it, that bit? Yeah. <laughs> 10 minutes <laughs> of eye contact. Yeah, and, and they all go completely nuts. There's the whole thing about the, the young girl being estranged from her father, you know, rebuild their relationship. There's just so many wonderful sort of moments in this film. But the film is even exciting. There's just a great adventure in there. It's got a great cast. Olivia Wilde as the voice of the uh, the robot leader. Danny McBride's in it. Maya Rudolph is in there. This film is like Toy Story and Zootopia, and Inside Out, they're the sort of like really sentimental, heartwarming films that absolutely get me every single time. I thought this film was a blast. It's a lot of fun, really colourful, really exciting. So many gags. I mean, there's, there's a great uh, little inside adventure in the mall where they uh, end up facing off with a, uh, a, a group of Furbies. The lead character I absolutely adored and fell in love with, but it's a real prize get for for netflix on me absolutely wonderful movie anybody else seen it oh yeah i loved it oh god yeah fantastic with laughter the whole way through so many film references in it you know the fog and she's got the shining socks and the cgi mixed with the um the hand-drawn art as well fantastic yeah it's amazing I, I what, laughed three times in the first nine minutes. I thought that was pretty damn good. And it, and it is a true family film. And we yes. w- we watched it. So I've got a ten year old, seven year old. My wife and I watched it. All of us were in absolute fits of laughter at various different points. Like throughout, it wasn't like just one or two times. It's like almost every five minutes, you, you're properly in hysterics. Yeah, it's a ma- it's absolutely manic. But that's what Lord and Miller do, don't they? The Lego movies, movies, and everything. Everything is awesome. The bit where they tied the dog to the front of the car to confuse the robot. Dog, pig, dog, pig. Loaf of bread. Bread. (laughs) All right, so it's something I should watch then. Oh, yeah. You'll hate it. (laughs) It's that good, you'll hate it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Darren, rescue me from this with another one, please. The next one is The Map of Tiny Perfect Things, which is a film on uh, Amazon Prime. Bit of a shout-out to Declan Shields for this one. This had popped up on Amazon Prime a few months ago, meant to watch it and forgot about it. And he actually reached out to me and Phil and asked for our opinions on it. So, you know, this is, you know, really thanks to him that uh, I got to, to watch this. This is basically another time loop movie the second one we've had in several months it's got to say and it's basically about a young guy who's been living the same day again and again every moment of the day he knows what's going to happen he's got a routine where he goes out and pretty much um, stops a woman from having a car crash because she's on her phone he stops a guy from basically a bird crapping on his head he stops a girl from falling into the swimming pool he's got it all sort of you know set out and then one day he encounters a girl who isn't part of his regular day and he realises that she as well must be stuck in a time loop with him. They meet up and they form a partnership where they basically try to track down 
every perfect little inspiring moment that happens in that day. Just little moments like a hawk catching a fish from a lake, a moment where this guy sat on a bench as a uh, van pulls up behind him that has a um, has a painting of like uh, angel wings. And just where he sat, it makes it look like he's actually got the wings. Just these like tiny, cool little uh, moments that the book two of them share together and try to track down. It's a time loop movie. It does have that really cringy, cute nod to where one of the characters says, oh, you mean like Groundhog Day? I didn't think they needed to do that, though, because this is a film that is, is entirely its own. It's a very positive, charming movie. The two leads are completely likeable. And their quest to discover the um, the little adventures of life, it reminded me a bit of what Ferris Bueller says at the end of uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where he says, if you don't take the time to look around the world, you'll miss it. And this is all about them basically experiencing everything in life that, you know, wonderful and that you can cram into one day. It's just got a, a nice, really comfortable film with a really good heart. Um, it does go through the trope of the, the two of them have a divide at some point. But the reasons for that could have some like really sort of, you know, cool twist and there's a real positivity about it. And like Groundhog Day, it has that way that the, there's a lesson to be learnt from this film of, of being a good person and thinking about others I, I thought this was actually a, a, a wonderful film in it in the stuff that has happened in the uh, in the last five years of various things it's something that we all, could all do with reminding ourselves of I thought this was an absolutely perfect little film excellent thank you Darren anybody else seen it yeah I've watched it as well um obviously like Darren said Declan asked us um to watch it I, I liked it it kind of reminded me of like, it's like a young adult version of a time loop movie. And I don't mean that as like a slight. The one thing I'd say, I don't know if you thought this, Darren, but I kind of felt that the lead couple had the sort of chemistry about them of Heath Ledger and Julia Stiles in 10 Things I Hate About You. He was making all the romantic gestures and she was kind of trying to resist him. It was just kind of sweet. Yeah, I, I know what you mean, but as, as you watch the fit, I think there's like a, there's, there's like a reason why that, that that actually happens, and and I think that was one of the sort of you know the, the nice revelations about the, about this this movie, and uh, you know I, I don't want to spoil it. There's something that he says towards the end of the film when he finds out what what is actually going on and why, which I thought was a really good line. I don't want to say it because it's, it would actually ruin the film, but there's a really nice turnaround at the end of the of the, uh, the actual perspective of you know what this film is actually about and who it's actually about. Uh, what's next, Darren? Okay, so the, the next film, it's not a new film. It's been out a couple of years in, in Hong Kong, but it's only just arrived on um, Amazon Prime, and it's called The Counterfeiter. This film absolutely filled me with joy. I, I went into it with a bit of trepidation because it's basically one of my absolute passions in film fandom. It's a Hong Kong movie starring Chow Yun-Fat. Hong Kong movies, I absolutely Love in the 80s and early 90s. I absolutely loved the whole heroic bloodshed genre. Chow Yun Fat at one time was probably one of my favorite actors ever. You know, just so, just so much, you know, charisma in the guy. Hong Kong movies went through a really sort of bad phase. You know, other countries in um, in East Asia basically sort of overtook them. Hong Kong movies started to fall back a bit. They went, they start, went through really cheap. This is a real return to form. It looks like a real proper movie. 
it's quite a complex plot with lots of um, flashbacks and different perspectives. But the general gist of it is it's a film where a failed artist is recruited by a master criminal played by Chow Yun-Fat, who is actually playing a villain for once, and he's recruited into a gang who are trying to counterfeit a brand new design of a of an American $100 bill. And it starts off with a bit of an Ocean's Eleven-type caper movie, but as the film goes on, Chow Yun-Fat's character starts to show a real ruthless side that takes the film in a completely dark turn. It was really great to see Chow Yun-Fat back, back on form. It did great playing a baddie, which is something that he doesn't normally do. Even though this is sort of like a crime movie and, and sort of down to earth at times, there was a, a long action scene that felt really out of place and really turned out from, from nowhere. But I kind of didn't mind because it gave me the chance to once again see Chow fat firing two guns at the same time in slow motion and uh, jumping over things that were exploding. So, so for that, I was eternally grateful. And, and in a funny sort of way, it was a film that when you actually thought about it, that scene after watching it made more sense. Now, I've got to say that this film has got some stuff in it that happens that will make a lot of people who aren't familiar with Hong Kong movies absolutely groan and roll their eyes. Um, but I would really would urge people to, to go out and see this film because even if you're not into Hong Kong movies, the, some of the twists in it are, are really interesting. I personally got a kick out of them. There's a very, very Hong Kong theme about them. But I think some people will have a real problem with what happens. If you are a fan of East Asian films, if you've never seen Hong Kong films before, or if you're a fan of those, really check this out. Because like I say, this felt like almost, if you were a big fan of Westerns, and then you watched Unforgiven, which was like the best Western for years, and it basically brought you know brought the whole relevancy of the genre back. That's how I felt watching this film. It you know it really sort of reignited my old passion for Hong Kong movies. Did you instantly rewatch A Better Tomorrow? Funnily enough, I didn't. But the next day, I watched Hard Boiled again, which I'd not watched for a while. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I've definitely seen that one. I'm fairly sure I've seen this film. I'm going to have to watch it again. I am a fan, the same as you, uh, Darren, on these sort of films. Okay. So, yeah. Thank you. What's the final one, then, Darren? Well, the final one, it's a a Netflix movie. Um, This one is called Stowaway. The story of this is that there are three astronauts we're on a two-year journey to Mars to basically start colonisation of the planet. Part of the way there, they begin investigating some damage that has uh, happened to the rocket and they find uh, an unconscious technician who has had an accident while uh, repairing the ship. He's basically been knocked unconscious and he was there when they launched and now he's trapped with them. The problem is that they only have supplies and oxygen to get them to Mars for the three of them. The life support is not going to, uh, especially with the damage that it's insured, the life support is not going to get all four of them to Mars. So it basically leads to the terrible question of should the stowaway who shouldn't actually be there be the one to be sacrificed so the others can live? Now, this is a real, this is a film that could have turned into a real melodrama very easily, but it manages to stay authentic and believable because even though it's a film that could have been a stage play because it's a very few locations very sort of self-contained people don't make speeches in this film 
they talk to each other, they debate, they try to work through the problem, you know, and so this makes the dilemma feel all the more real. And all four of them give, give real great performances. Anna Kendrick's in this movie, and she is so good in it. You, you sort of, I, I sort of forget what a good actress she is because she takes so many light roles on and comedy roles, but in something like this, where she's like a, a really serious, you know, serious dilemma that we've got, she gives a really powerful performance. It's just a, a really good film about generally good people having to make really tough decisions and, and doing the, the right thing or the, the logical thing. The one thing I will say about the film that I thought really let it down somewhat is this, the special effects in the film aren't really convincing. The, the, the scenes of the, of the spacecraft is fine, but the plot requires them to have several spacewalk scenes that look very cheap and they're not convincing. And they try to cover that up somewhat by saying that the, the ship that they're on has like a, has a gravity field around it, but it, it just looks shoddy. It, you're not convinced that they are actually out there in, in space. The film generally is a human drama and the questions of morality. And, and I have to say, I was really surprised because I thought because of a story that the film was going to take a certain direction and it didn't do that. It was a more refreshing thing. I thought it would take on a more dark and sinister tone and more of a thriller. And it, and it wasn't. It, it remained like a human story. I found that really refreshing. But yeah, this was a really engaging film. You know, you were sort of, you know, you wondered how, if they were going to get out of it and how and what decisions they were going to make. And it's a very tense film in faces, but it's also a really hopeful movie as well. And I really enjoyed this one. Anybody else seen it? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it as well. It's basically the ethical dilemma, the trolley problem in a science fiction film. What Darren said about them trying to work through the problem, it's like all good astronauts. You know, they're really highly intelligent. They're trying to solve problems. And I thought it was a really good balance of philosophical argument, existential despair and adventure. I, I quite enjoyed it. Top of my list to watch next. Well, thank you. That's another Darren's Dash and uh, some excellent recommendations. Thank you there, Darren. You're welcome. That completes my Dash for this month. Okay, gentlemen, out of all the films that you reviewed this month, what would you guys rate as your film of the month? Start with you, Neil. I really want to say Mitchell's versus the Machines, but I'm not going to. The promising young woman. Okay. Graham? I'm going to go for Nomadland, but Kong versus Godzilla for the cinema experience. Uh, Jeff? Oh, Nomadland by a mile. I'll be honest, it's a really tough one for me this month, but I'm, I think I'm going to settle on Promising Young Woman. Phil, what about you? No, no, I'm only kidding. I'm <laughs> promising young woman. <laughs> so that wins overall then. Yeah, really of the month. Promising young woman. As for next month, we bring the Bond films of the 1960s to an end with not one but two special shows postponed from last month. One of the top BBC reporters of the Southwest reveals his top five movies for us and... A young filmmaker talks about his very impressive short film and we'll tell you where you can watch it. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. 
Did I tell you I might have the Indian variant of COVID? I keep saying, goodness gracious me. Enough with that pathetic joke. One more and I'll make you my golf caddy for a month. You can carry my clubs. What is Neil playing golf and the British entry to Eurovision now in common? (laughs) Right. And to everyone else, thanks for listening and goodbye.